0: Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number 68 for August 31st, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. In this week's podcast, we continue our discussion with Rob McAndrews, which took place at the World Fellowship Center not too long ago. We talk about how El Salvador has changed over the years and its continuing struggle for justice. Enjoy. Yeah, you know, we, or I should say, I showed the, the film to a group of people here at the World Fellowship last night, and one of the things that came up in the question and answer period was the, what does justice mean? And uh, if you've been listening to this podcast, we talked with uh, Representative Jim McGovern and we also t- talked to Stefan Schmidt, who uh, does genocide uh, work in forensic uh, work in Guatemala. And they both spoke to the idea of, of justice and what that means. And one thing that I, that I think they touched upon was the the need for, as you say, the truth to find out what happened, but that doesn't necessarily mean... Um, that it turns into a witch hunt or anything. You know, that that there's this uh, vengeance side of of justice, that that justice, in order to move past what happens, you need to understand the truth and then reconcile that.
1: Exactly. Uh, And the progression of that week after we spend days uh, where participants were asked to express what it is that they would like to see happen, uh, the culmination as you as you pointed out, was meeting with the President, and for the President of El Salvador, President Funes, to apologize uh, in front of that group of people who had been meeting day after day, discussing these issues. I mean, for for me, it was just the most remarkable experience. I just can't imagine what the emotions were like for the Salvadorans to be invited to their White House, invited to their president, who is now willing to go public with with this apology and with this uh, cry for... uh, acknowledgment on the, the official acknowledgment on the part of the government that yes this did happen and we want the next generation to learn about this and for us to to not not be afraid of confronting the truth i very often think of how many generations have passed since the Armenian Genocide and how much pain the Armenian communities uh, still have throughout the United States, throughout the world, for the fact that that recognition by the the, by the Turkish government uh, and by other uh, countries or organizations in the world, they do not recognize uh, the suffering of the Armenian people at that time. And so, that, that example, that historical example, in that Armenian case, we're going back to World War I, uh, it was very much in my mind when I was in El Salvador, when the survivors are, are pleading for the truth to be recorded, pleading for their memories and not to just be uh, forgotten, but that uh, professional writers and journalists and historians, that they would um, make sure that these memories were put uh, there for the next generation to know about.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, that um, we watched a documentary film about the uh, disappearances in Argentina. And the um, I'm blanking on the film, but it's in uh, one of our earlier podcasts. And one of the things that came up in that was the the crime of disappearance itself and how it's a fate almost worse than death because, at least for the family's point of view in that this individual disappears there's no record, there's no grave there's nothing for them to uh, provide closure to the situation and so when a loved one is taken they are gone but the fate of that individual is unknown and I think that it's that unknown which causes the most distress almost more than um, if they were to end up uh, killed
1: I think about that almost every day as I read the newspapers of wars presently and wars in the past, where there are bodies uh, put into individual mass graves, and loved ones want to know. We we all watched and learned about the truth commissions in South Africa under Bishop Desmond uh, Tutu, and we we learned the importance. Uh, for the family members to know, to want to know, at a minimum, from the military, from the police, well, where did you bury uh, my son or my daughter or my father? Uh, to know that uh, in 2011, uh, I went with staffers from Probuscada to the exhumation of a grave uh, uh, near the border of uh, Chal- Chalatenango, and. It was remarkable to me to be sitting with the the mother uh, who was searching for uh, her son for many, many years. And there were rumors by the villagers that her son was indeed buried in a mass grave just outside of the village. And so uh, forensic uh, anthropologists from Argentina uh, came up at the request of Probuscada, and they started then to uh, dig through this mountainside And indeed, uh, as the days passed, they unearthed 10 bodies. And subsequently, with the DNA uh, analyses, they did determine that one of the infants that was buried there was indeed this woman's uh, child. And I believe that meant a lot to her. Hmm.
0: On, I guess, a more positive note, I mean, even though that these are, are difficult situations that we're talking about, with the advance of dna technology you know we're able to have those answers and i would say even the my situation has benefited from you know current internet technologies where i'm able to stay in contact and get to know my family even more and you think about uh you you mentioned the armenian as an example and you know you go back to when that happened and they didn't have these you know uh this advance in technology to provide those answers or that connection and so while it might be hard to find out that your baby is in this mass grave at least we can now provide those answers to someone and let the healing process begin and i think that that is a very
1: important point i'm glad you you specifically mentioned that and yes it, it is something that's extraordinarily important um when you mentioned before that, in your point of view, many of the Salvadoran Americans you know and, and other the Salvadorans are not necessarily looking for vengeance. They're not necessarily looking for long prison terms or such, but they do want justice. And fortunately, as you say, we have the technology today uh, to help loved ones uh, to find out more information. And I think that's a very, very important point uh, issue. We, we watch Bosnians and Cambodians Rwandans and all around the world um, being able to um, learn from the advances of science and the importance of the work done by forensic uh, scientists in, from Guatemala to Rwanda and as tragic as those situations are and they're very very tragic um, we are able to make some advances and helping people to know what happened, and that's very important. And I think what you're doing with with your programming um, is very, very important, Uh, not only for those who are directly affected by the Salvadoran War, but, uh, tangentially, those who are studying these issues pertaining to people throughout the world. So I I know
0: that you are... um, also doing some work with, some current work with Salvadorans, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, what you're doing now to kind of, I, I know that the the disappearances and, and those cases take a long time to sort of unfold, but you're still involved with the country and, in different levels, and I'd love to hear more about that.
1: So um, I continue to hear from people from time to time, um, you know, maybe every month or so from someone uh, who is just learning about the work of Probúsqueda, and I can serve as a, a liaison uh, for them to, uh, to find out more about the organization. But in addition to that, uh, I still work with the Salvadoran Association for Rural Health, and uh, also as a lawyer, I represent uh, many Salvadorans uh, in, their, um, in their quest to uh, obtain asylum in the United States. Um, primarily uh, the asylum seekers are seeking refuge from the gang violence in El Salvador. And in my work with the Salvadoran Association for Rural Health, it's very similarly focused on the children uh, in both the rural and the urban areas of El Salvador who are trying to find a refuge in El Salvador from the gang violence. and so. This is the summer of 2014 that our newspapers have been flooded with articles about the exodus of many children, many of whom have come to the border of Texas and Arizona, New Mexico, unaccompanied by their parents, Um, and in many of most cases. Uh, They are telling journalists and uh, humanitarian workers uh, that they're fleeing the violence uh, from the gangs. And so how tragic it is that for for many, many years now, uh, El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala has been um, just uh, having to confront uh, this new rage of violence that's not necessarily... Uh, civil war and what we're talking about uh, drug cartels and extortion of people um, I don't think you can really understand the the tide of this violence and its impact on the entire society and the children without understanding the, the context of the civil war itself and uh, the refugee situation and so forth um, that would probably be a good subject for a different podcast, those yes. connections. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I'm very privileged to be able to continue to work uh, with Salvadorans who do make it to the United States, who are asking for asylum. However, um, several of the circuit courts in the United States have refused to accept uh the reason for asylum based on their fear of persecution by the gangs or Mm -hmm. fear of recruitment by the gangs Uh, they just won't accept that as a reason for um, applying for asylum and so I continue uh, representing Salvadorans, nonetheless hoping that maybe I will get a judge who will understand things differently Mm. and uh, that they that may open up that possibility for people. Mm.
0: Stefan Stefan Schmidt in his interview had a great line where he said, you know, uh, it's, it's not great in in what it represents, but his phrasing was great. That back in the '80s, at least you knew who the enemy was and and who you were fighting, and now you could get murdered on the street for no reason. And I think that is sort of a a reflection of the gang violence and the sort of chaos that has enveloped much of Latin America.
1: I've heard many Salvadorans, many, say exactly that. Mm -hmm. Um, The extent of the reach of MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang Mm -hmm. is just enormous throughout Mm -hmm. El Salvador. And really in just the last five years... Uh, I've I've witnessed it spread to the rural areas. Um, prior to that, it was much more confined to urban areas, but now uh, they are uh, spreading. I don't myself pretend to know what, what the answer is to it all, but we can't give up hope. We have to keep helping uh, humanitarian organizations as they try to... Uh, keep children uh, from harm's way, help them with their education. I would want to say, and this is not being falsely Pollyanna about the situation, but that even though the newspapers uh, will often remind people that El Salvador and Honduras have the highest murder rate in the world outside of uh, war zones themselves. I'm, I understand that, and while, when I'm in El Salvador, and I just spent three weeks there this summer, uh, when the sun goes down, uh, people lock up and they're off the streets, and you have to be very, very careful. Nevertheless, I've been traveling to El Salvador since 1998, and I've seen very important constructive changes. Uh, we have watched uh, the infant mortality rate decline mm-hmm. dramatically. We have seen just in a 10-year period, the average education rate go from uh, the fifth or sixth grade to nearly high school completion. That's a remarkable change. And materially, uh, things are, are progressing in a good way, uh, health care, education. So there's, there's a, a foundation there. And then, of course, politically, politically. Uh, I think it was remarkable in this last election period where the votes between uh, the two major parties, the FMLN and the Arena Party, were so close. The difference in the uh, the second round of voting was less than 0.1%. And yet, while there was initially for 48 hours some violence in San Salvador, that passed and the, the torch was passed on to the next presidency. That was remarkable. And so there's a lot to be said for uh, having a positive perspective on on the developments in El Salvador.
0: Yeah. And so I wanted to end with a a couple of personal questions. Uh, The first one is, what is it about El Salvador and the country and the people that keeps you coming back? Why have you for you know, 30 years now worked so closely with individuals and, and gone down to the country so many different times?
1: So I've thought about that of myself too and I guess there's two sides to it sort of a yin yang. One is the political side and that is during the Vietnam War I was actively opposed to the war. Uh, I was a draft resistor and put on trial and when that war ended, we saw under the Reagan administration and early administrations a shift in Cold War tactics and strategy towards Central and Latin and South America. And so many of us political activists became very uh, concerned about the, uh, the aid, the military aid that the United States was giving to El Salvador. And so I became actively involved in that way. And I continue to be a political activist. However, the other side of me, uh, not unlike most people, of course, is that it's it's a very personal um, existential, it's of personal existential importance to me. And so as I began to meet the individuals themselves from El Salvador as refugees in the 1980s and then later on in the 1990s, this became very much part of my own personal uh, story of my life, of that the wars were no longer just abstractions in the New York Times, as really the Vietnam War was for me as a young man. Uh, My political sympathies were there. I did not travel to Vietnam. I did not know any Vietnamese. However, for the Salvadorans, this became very personal as I began to know uh, children and adults and families. And so taking my first trip in 98 and then 12 or 14 trips subsequently Mm -hmm. to that, uh, my personal relationships with the individuals have only deepened and deepened even more. And um, I'm very, very uh, privilege to have met you Hmm. and uh, other Salvadoran Americans uh, and to be able to touch their stories and um, so those are the two reasons I think Hmm.
0: and then my last question is there seems to be a duality about being American and in this situation in that we are both the We've played a role in the, uh, uh, as the aggressor, but also as the healer, you know, that it is uh, because of US foreign aid that El Salvador is such a mess today, but at the same time, it is our research and our DNA labs that are helping families heal. Both Stefan and uh, McGovern had an understanding about that and were open and honest about the roles, but also, you know, felt the sense of responsibility. And I guess what I'm wondering from you is how do you, and this is something I've had to reconcile myself, but how do you reconcile those two roles that we are also, we are not only providing help and support and and closure, but at the same time we are partly responsible for what happened and what continues to happen down there.
1: You spoke about this last night. Uh, after you showed your documentary and some of the participants wanted to know your political views and your personal views. And I think I very much share your perspective on this. Um, I probably have been helped most by Salvadorans themselves, who I would have very quiet personal discussions with where I could say to them, asked them the question uh, how do you feel about folks like myself coming down and working with you on projects and so forth um, where, how far do you cast blame or in what way do, how do you think about this and you said last night that um, the perspective that you have found is that your government is one thing and what you're government leaders did and did not do then back during the war is one thing but the American people uh, we have hope and we have seen the generosity of of many American people and we understand the difference and for me to hear that from many Salvadorans uh, has helped me tremendously and so while at the beginning in the In 1998, when I made my first trip, your question was very much on my mind, you know, what is it like for for me uh, to go back to this place where, uh, in large part, because of all that military aid, so much suffering happened? Uh, What does it mean? How am I going to be received? Well, I just took my trip this summer, and I was there for quite a while. In 2014, and I would say that I no longer have those questions, hmm. uh, and I, I'm, I'm old enough to be comfortable with paradoxes, hmm. and with knowing that, uh, yes, indeed, uh, my government continues to do some awful things in the world. However, there are things, many wonderful things that American citizens do, and and also. That our government does that are very positive. No country is perfect. My country is not perfect. We have done some awful things, and we need to uh, recognize them and come to terms with them. But I also understand that uh, my government and the people, the American people, have the capacity for for great goodness as well.
0: Yeah. And I, I feel like that is a, a hard place for many Americans to get to, and that a, a lot of the, uh, you know, angst around the border and everything that has happened with this crisis comes from that, that we're sort of unable as a nation to say we are partially responsible, if not, you know, uh, mostly responsible for this crisis at the border. And uh, people seem to want to push it back and say, no, this isn't, this isn't our problem. These countries should be able to take care of themselves. But we Uh, we got involved in in wars that we probably shouldn't have. And in fact, you know, Congress said we shouldn't be there. So reconciling that I think is something that I I hope more Americans will um, attempt to do and understand and uh, perhaps get to know many more of these people as you have. So with that, I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast, for taking the time to speak with us and, uh, We look forward to many more of uh, your stories and endeavors.
1: Nelson, thank you so much. It was just wonderful. Thank you.
0: And thank you, everyone at home, for listening. We'll see you next time.